0: This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and non-fiction, graphic novels and more, we are here to help you find something great to read. Welcome back to Books and Nachos. This is Brock, and today I will be reviewing Ian Fleming's novel, Thunderball. As you probably already know, Stuart and I are reviewing all the original Ian Fleming James Bond novels as a companion piece to our 25 episode James Bond movie retrospective over at Now Playing Podcast, which you can find at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Thunderball is the ninth book in the James Bond series and the eighth James Bond novel as For Your Eyes Only was the previously released book and that is a collection of James Bond short stories. Thunderball was first published in 1961. And was actually considered to be produced as the first James Bond movie by Eon Productions, but due to the legal action surrounding this book, they went with Dr. No instead. As we mentioned during our now playing review of the movie Thunderball and again during our review of Never Say Never Again, Thunderball is not solely Fleming's creation. I don't want to get too into that now, we cover that over there at Now Playing, but briefly, Fleming took the pieces of an abandoned Bond movie screenplay and created a novel of the treatment which without first acquiring permission from the other authors. And they sued. And one of those men, Kevin McClory, won the movie rights to the characters and situations in this book. And, needless to say, it caused a lot of legal issues for many, many years to come. And this is hardly the first time that Fleming repurposed material. As I mentioned previously in other Books and Nachos episodes already, Fleming used abandoned script outlines and treatments for four of the stories in the For Your Eyes Only collection. Right away and throughout the read, I was impressed with how closely the book and the movie's plot were to one another. After years of hearing and reading how the movies and the books really don't have much to do with each other, I liked that this plot was so similar. The book works much better than the movie does in telling this story. For all the similarities to the movie, though, there is no Fiona, no Junkaroo scene, no pointless sequences like the fight that opens the movie and ends with a jetpack. There are gadgets here, but in a much lesser role, most notably the Geiger counter camera. But again, no Rocket Pack, no Aston Martin car or mini-rebreather. During my Quantum of Solace review at Books and Nachos, I mentioned how I wished I had read a full James Bond novel before I read those short stories, Because even though I enjoyed those reads, I wasn't given the adventurous Bond I was looking for. I am now glad I read it the way I did. Starting off with those five stories in that collection certainly prepared me for the character of Bond I would get here in Thunderball. A man of action, but just not the amount of action I am used to in the movies. Finally, I am getting a James Bond work that James Bond is the focal point of the story. Other characters are more colorful, but few here are more interesting. For example, when I read that Bond has a scar on his left cheek, it instantly gave the character a sense of history. We see a complex character, a man frustrated with his job but completely loyal to it, who wants to do it more and better. A detective who needs to find out the answers to his case, who follows his curiosity and gets into lethal situations because of it. A cool character that takes chances confronting people he has no idea of what they're capable of, and a man who seems to be turning a corner in his feelings towards the opposite sex, specifically speaking in this book, Domino. This Bond feels lived in. He is set in his ways, and he's a real pisser, but we see growth. I think Fleming does a great job with Bond in this novel. The book opens up with Bond having a hangover, <laughs> and I don't recall ever seeing that in any movie. Bond is called into M's office regarding a medical report At Bond's hard living is not doing great things for his body and M sends him to the Shrublands Clinic. I mention this scene here at all because of how much character and personality the author is able to cram into this one scene. And I got a real sense of the men and their relationship and it starts off the book splendidly. And he does that very simply by starting off the scene with M calling 007 James and by the end of the scene when Bond does not take M's advice seriously, dismissing him as 007. Something as simple as what the characters call each other conveys a wealth of character, information, and made for an engaging scene at the top of the book. And here... I get my first Money Penny scene in print. Nice! <laughs> in addition to reading Money Penny for the first time with Thunderball, I get my first Felix Leiter novel experience. Though Stuart read Live and Let Die for this Books and Nachos series, Felix Leiter getting eaten by sharks in that book I know about because when the scene appears in the movie License to Kill, the press mentioned that fact repeatedly, as do all supplemental materials I have read over the years. In fact, it is one of the few book trivia tidbits I knew about regarding the books versus the movies for years. Anyway, I like the continuity here, as he has a hook hand. So toward the end of the book, he and Bond share a laugh about the hook, but I was really surprised that no one else mentioned it at all, not even in casual conversation or as a slur. Even when Leiter and Bond go on to Largo's yacht under false pretenses, no one comments on why he doesn't have two hands. And as written, Felix is less of a sideline coach and more hands-on, pardon the pun, than in many of the movie appearances. He actually figures out what the Spectre plan is way before Bond and the rest of the intelligence community, but Bond quickly dismisses the theory as it was too unbelievable. <laughs> that provided the strongest chuckle in the book. So, again, much like the movie, we get the scenes at the health clinic at the beginning of the story, but it plays out differently here. Bond notices Count Lippy's tattoo under his watch, and the symbol gets Bond intrigued. So he calls in to MI6 records, and they say it's entirely criminal, and so Bond investigates, and he gets busted for listening in on Lippy's call. Therefore, Lippy tries to kill him on the rack, like in the movie. Bond gets severely injured, blacks out, and he's days to recover, and now Bond knows that Lippy has giant secrets to hide because he tried to kill him. So while again, it is a major coincidence that Bond is at this health clinic and stumbles upon this, this man who happens to be involved in a worldwide ransom plot. It surprisingly plays so much better here than in both movies, perhaps because unlike in the movies where Spectre was introduced in Doctor No, in the novels, at this time, Bond has no idea what Spectre is. This being the book the organization is introduced, and consequently, Blofeld. Blofeld is described differently than we have seen him portrayed in the movies. Crew cut hair... 280 pounds, superior brain, asexual, enigma to those who know him. Fleming goes into how he rose to power, created his own syndicate, and how he crafted his own disappearance, and we get a lot more explanation on the background of Spectre than we ever got in the movies. And arguably, all of this is too much. I think a bit of the mystery of the organization could have gone a long way. For example, we learn of the various Spectre operatives, backgrounds on some, and Blofeld kills one of them in typical Blofeld fashion by electrocuting him because he put Operation Omega, their grand scheme in this book, at risk by violating a kidnapped girl when they were just to return the child unharmed for the money. Since the deal parameters were not met on Blofeld's end, Blofeld actually returns half the ransom and writes an apology letter. We don't get a lot of Blofeld here. He actually appears in the beginning of the book and then disappears for the rest of the time. But I enjoy Blofeld so much. I enjoy how Blofeld's lines were written. All business. Multisyllabic, you hear the monotone voice in your head while you're reading them. I love the efficiency of this character and how he overexplains using those big words. So well does Fleming introduce him that when we read the ransom note, as Bond does in M's office, I can hear a distinct voice as it goes into how they stole the plane, how it's all business, nothing personal. The voice in my head is an amalgam of, and I'll try to explain it here, of what Donald Pleasence did with the character, crossed with Hannibal Lecter, with a little bit of Munchkin from The Wizard of Oz. Anyway, I enjoyed Blofeld quite a lot. Much like the medical clinic scene, Domino's presence in this story also plays better than in the movie versions, and her character is the one who has the strongest and, well, the only real character arc in the story. Domino is the most sympathetic character in this book, something that the movies were toying with, but here Fleming is able to convey much stronger. When we first read about Bond meeting up with her, it is a little confusing as to why Bond would know to go to her to get information on Lago, and that's because Fleming writes some chapters out of order for effect. And this time, it probably would have been a stronger move to have read how Bond knew enough to introduce himself to her before getting into the scene. Nevertheless, Bond and Domino's rapport in this first scene reads swiftly, as Bond shows a good sense of humor when he meets Domino. And we read Bond assess the kind of lever Domino would make just by watching her drive. <laughs> Inexplicably, he calls her a bitch after she drops Bond off, and given where the relationship goes as the book progresses, this reads as a defense mechanism, as Bond clearly is smitten with Domino. Perhaps she's a major reason Bond could open himself up to love in the next novel, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. We will see. The main villain of this piece, Largo, is a capable and strong villain. One who, like Blofeld, kills subordinates who show the slightest lack of loyalty. We read the mercilessness of Largo a few times in this book, and each time it reads like a man who is ruthless in getting his plan to come to fruition. And the man is smart, thank goodness. So when Bond goes up against Largo, we get a real sense of two men who are good at what they do, much like in Risico. Bond's first meeting with Largo was a blast to read because of all the lying going on from both men. Bond and Leiter finagle a tour of the Disco Valente, which is Largo's yacht, and uses a Geiger counter that looks like a camera the whole time to locate traces of the missiles. And Largo goes on and on about his cover story, Treasure Hunting. Then the two of them face off again at the gambling table and it plays off like a classic Bond scenario. Largo winning big until Bond arrives. Bond goads him and beats him big to the point of embarrassment and even drops in the word specter a few times to get a reaction. Bond wins a dinner with Domino and pumps her for information smile inducing moments across the board. The plane hijacking scene is just an awesome scene. How Domino's brother kills the crew with cyanide and lands the plane in the water. But the capper The brutal and wholly avoidable death of Domino's brother. He didn't even ask for more money. He was just a moron. He trusted these people who clearly should not have been trusted. And since his part of the job was done, Largo pops him right then and there on the wing of the plane. It leaves his body with the plane underwater. Fleming once again shows us how strongly he can write an action scene here. I had quite a strong image in my head of Petrachi's smiling face as he meets up with Largo there on the wing, and I can just imagine Largo's stone-cold face as he just shoots this naive man. Another surprisingly good action scene comes when Bond investigates the hull of the Disco Valente and battles underwater with a sentry. An unremarkable scene otherwise, but this action piece is vivid and entertaining, and at that time in the book, was a strong time to include an action scene. Came right when we needed one. But the strongest point of the book is after Felix and Bond find the plane underwater and find Domino's brother's body, Bond goes to Domino to tell her about her brother. Under the guise of it being advantageous to have an ally so close to Largo to crack open the case, but Bond clearly is doing it because of the feelings he's starting to develop for her. And yet, In this scene, Bond comes off like a dog. It plays like two characters who are just really not sure of where they are with each other. He goes to see her to break the news, doing the right thing, and he helps her by sucking sea spines out of her foot, and then he sleeps with her. The whole time, knowing what he knows, why he's there, he screws her before shattering her life. And I was surprised it played out that way. Once he reveals the information to domino. She calls Bond out on his behavior, thankfully, and he admits he was wrong to do it with her first. But he says he wanted to delay hurting her for as long as possible. And yes, that can come off like a good line. I was doing it to delay hurting you as long as possible. But as written, I actually believe Bond means that when he says it. This chapter reads beautifully. It's full of strong character development and is a major turning point in the book, not only for the plot, but for these characters as they are falling in love with each other. And once Domino is turned to help Bond, she gets busted by Largo using the Geiger counter camera and he tortures her for information. A discerning move on the part of the author that we don't actually read the torture, we read it happened. And we do find out later how Largo tortured Domino using ice cubes and a cigar scientifically, but we never read the scene of Largo administering the torture. So perhaps he tried to write these scenes and came up empty and handle it this way, but our imagination does so much more than trying to describe gratuitous, uncomfortable violence onto a character that we, the audience, sympathize with and actually like. The climactic ending between Bond and Largo is fantastical. There's this elaborate plan to try to catch Largo in the act with the bombs to take away plausible deniability. Largo tried... They cut and run, and Bond determined not to let that happen. They finally face off. Bond and Largo fight under the water, savagely going after each other's air hose, and Largo is perched on the Sea Chariot Gizmo, holding the second bomb. So... He has two hands on this chariot thing, and Bond has one holding on to it and one trying to attack. And Bond is just physically exhausted at the end of the battle. It reads so vividly, showing us Largo with the upper hand and Bond scraping for a point to make a difference. Turn the tide. It's a real Bond kind of fight. The sort of thing I'm used to watching in the movies, and I loved what I was reading. I thought of the end of Octopussy, when Bond is on top of the plane, or at the end of A View to a Kill, when in desperation he just grabs onto the tethering rope. Bond just wants to stay in the fight long enough to make the difference. The Largo face-off is satisfying, but it's a tad silly in its conclusion as Bond tries to get covered to rest as Largo still pursues. I liked how Bond was exhausted and hurt and thought he was going to die here. Words like spent and done were used by the author, perfectly telling us his condition, how vulnerable Bond was at this moment, vulnerable physically and, of course, emotionally. And right in that moment when Bond thinks it's over, Domino comes in and kills Largo. Having Domino intervene seems a little far-fetched at this point, but yes, of course, makes narrative sense. Fleming sets it up that someone has to save Bond's life here. And it's better that it's Domino than Felix Leiter or a baby squid that is in the scene. But it's much like how it plays at the end of Never Say Never Again. The right character kills Largo, but I'm not completely happy with how it goes down. The underwater fights that I complained about so much in our review of Thunderball move like lightning here in the book. Bond actually gets hurt. The stakes seem higher because the goal isn't really to kill anybody, but just to incapacitate them because people will need to surface. There's a real sense of danger the whole time, unlike the movie where it's choreographed and hokey, and the slow-motion feel took away from just how dangerous a situation they were all in. While a great deal of this book moves well, and is full of characters you get invested in, and the action scenes are strong, the book is isn't without its problems. Fleming goes into way too much description about consequential and non-consequential items. Like when he runs the doomsday scenarios about nuclear bombs. It reads like a stream of consciousness, and really, half the information would have been welcome. There's no need for this long diatribe. And like in the short stories, I get a strong impression of the author's viewpoints through his fictional lead character. Bond complains about the youth of the day like a middle-aged curmudgeon of a man, but yet a few sentences later gets along great with the young man driving his car. We also get another scene with Bond's maid May, who I came across the first time in the short stories. And Fleming again has her speak in this antiquated dialect that has nothing to do with the plot. Having her talk like this, it comes across as a class issue and reeks of the author's personal feelings. The novel of Thunderball manages to do what two movies have not been able to do, tell this story well. The characters and situations work in tandem here to a degree that is elusive to the movie counterparts. Fleming's prose may not be literature, but it reads well to this day, engrossing the reader into wanting to see how it all plays out. I've read a lot of Clive Custler, Dirk Pitt novels, and I see a lot of similarities to the style of writing and the characters there to this Bond novel. And perhaps it's because of my Custler reading I am enjoying this book so much clearly without Fleming, Custler would not have been around. They both have knack for having appealing characters and a plot with just enough mystery for our heroes to piece together while dealing with these murderers and thieves and the like, and along the way delivering some clever action sequences. So I give a hearty recommend to Thunderball. It is an enjoyable read. And I will be back next week reviewing another James Bond short story, The Living Daylights. Thanks for listening, and Books and Nachos will return. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at potsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.